This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When the ice breaks, when the hot shake in the town and the moxie in the winter, the end of my love for now and you spent your summer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week we take you on a trip back 50 years down memory lane where we look at all the hockey news from that time period. In this episode, which is number 61 for us, we are in the week of December 21st to 29th, 1970. This podcast is made possible by the support of our two fine sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, and we couldn't do this without their support. They enable us to get back into the news stories from 50 years ago and bring you all the great content that we have. We're also uh, supported by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario, just steps from the Welland Canal in Lake Erie. The folks at the Breakwall all produce some of the finest craft beers in the province of Ontario and they have some amazing pub food as well. When we can all get together again, I would love to meet any of our listeners at the break wall for a beer and a burger or some pizza. At this point, we always like to remind you about our new Patreon account as well. We hope our subscribers are enjoying the bonus content we're putting out, and we have a lot more neat stuff in the hopper coming out soon. Your donations help us pay the bills and enable us to uh, make the whole production as enjoyable and as professional as we can. Go to patreon.com slash hockey50years to donate and get some of this great special content. Last week was a bit of a, a tough week. Uh, we did have some good stories. Uh, the uh, terrible story from BC where the Maple Leafs, Brian Spencer's father was killed by police was something that we talked about. Don't enjoy those stories, but it was news at the time and we're bringing you everything. Uh, we talked about a few more developments in the Mike Walton situation in Toronto. Uh, more happens this week. And we had the story on the much-awaited Maple Leaf Gardens Board of Directors meeting in which Stafford Smythe and Harold Ballard were formally returned to the top of the executive ladder at Maple Leaf Gardens. And that event set the course for the Maple Leaf franchise for years to come and a bumpy course it has been a lot of news again this week as we're heading into the end of december uh we have these stories we're going to talk a bit about sid abel and ned harkness of the red wings calling this year's edition of the detroit club the worst red wing team ever maybe ned harkness and sid abel are finally on the same page 
Uh, we get news on the proposed Western Hockey League franchise for the city of Calgary. And finally, we get a decision on the sale of the Pittsburgh Penguins to Metro Media as the NHL makes an announcement on that front. We'll also uh, talk about a few of the key games that took place this week, and we'll get to that right now with a contest from Tuesday evening between the New York Rangers and the Buffalo Sabres. Many of the hockey writing pundits had picked the Broadway Blue Shirts to be solid Stanley Cup contenders for the 70-71 season, and we couldn't disagree with them at all. And the game that we're going to talk about here is a fairly representative of the uh, type of play the Rangers uh, were involved in this year as they belted the first-year Buffalo Club by a score of 7-2 to to win their sixth straight game. Uh, we wanted to bring you a different uh, than the New York perspective on this game, and we thank Charlie Barton of the Buffalo Courier Express for uh, the bulk of this report as uh, he's the great Courier Express hockey writer and uh, been around the game for years. He covered this game as well, some other reports that we found from the Canadian press and other outlets, but we'll talk about uh, this game from... Uh, not a New York perspective, just just to tell you how the other league was seeing, or the rest of the league, I should say, was seeing the Rangers. Now, a nine-goal hockey game automatically carries a carload of mistakes, but the teams weren't the only ones to make them when the Rangers hammered the Sabres 7-2 to two, uh, before a uh, kind of a confused gathering of 87-12 at the odd in Buffalo. For the Rangers, beaten only once in their last 14 games, this was, as we mentioned, their sixth win in a row, and this lifted them into a first-place tie with the Boston Bruins in the National Hockey League's Eastern Division. Dave Ballone led the Rangers with three goals. Captain Bob Nevin, Jack Eagers, Walter Kachuk, and Rod Bear with his first goal in 15 games, completed the Broadway Blue Shirt scoring. Phil Goyette and Eddie Schack collected power play goals for the Sabres, who held a 39-36 shooting advantage as they sustained their third straight defeat. A series of picture play goals across the final 40 minutes of the game erased a fine goaltending effort by the Sabres' Roger Crozier, who, as usual, made several spectacular stops in the early going to keep the Sabres more or less in the game. Eddie Jackman gave the Rangers first-rate goalkeeping as well, and he held the Sabres at bay when they dominated the play in the first period, but that domination, as we found out, was not going to last. Eddie Shack's goal at 3.28 of the third period and Ballone's second of the night at 7.50 had referee Bob Sloan in hot water up to his ears. The puck didn't appear to cross the goal line on either of those plays and the resultant complaints brought 10-minute misconduct penalties to New York's Ron Stewart and to the Sabres captain Floyd Smith and Reggie Fleming of the Sabres as well. Ron Stewart getting a misconduct, probably for offending the sense of humor of referee Sloan. 
uh, Stewart is one of the best comedians in the world of hockey, probably in the history of hockey. The Sabres, they, they really, they, they should have skated off with a one or two goal lead in, in the opening period. And then they couldn't maintain that pace when the Rangers shifted into high gear the rest of the way and basically outclassed the expansion club. What bothered Punch Imlach, the Buffalo general manager coach, and Emil Francis, his opposite number in the Ranger bench, were the disputed goals. Punch said, our goals, the ref, on our goal, the referee consulted with the goal judge, and then he ruled it a goal, Imlach said. On their goal, he didn't consult the goal judge, and all I can say is I want the same courtesy as the Rangers get. This is what upsets me most, according to Imlach. Punch went on to say that there's no way that an expansion team is ever going to get a break. The big teams get the breaks. It was the same way in Boston. We're tied two all after two periods. They get a goal on a play that's at least a yard offside. Then we get a bad penalty after that. Imlach went on to say that that's what bucks them most. It's the second time they outshoot a team and they lose. And Punch just can't abide by that. He believes that the officiating is... uh, drastically biased towards the established teams and if you watched hockey in the new expansion period between 1967 and the early 70s it was hard to disagree with any of the coaches of the expansion teams at that time that they were given raw deals magnanimous in uh, victory francis credited the sabers team with a strong effort Uh, emil said jockerman had to be real sharp early the sabers were really hustling but we got some really beautiful goals. Francis said he didn't want to comment on the refereeing, and really, why should he when all it do is going to cost him more money, money he doesn't want to spend. Francis said, we won the hockey game, I might as well save my breath and save my money. So Emil's saying, you know what, the refereeing wasn't that good, but why should I bother? Roger Crozier, as we mentioned, was brilliant. He made two good stops on Bob Nevin at the outset of the first period, and Pete Stemkowski overskated the puck with Crozier on the other side of the net, or the Rangers might have taken a league on one of those two stops that uh, Crozier made on, on Nevin. After uh, he made another fine save on Brad Park, and then Nevin again all alone, put away a 10-foot backhander, and Ballone's perfect pass out, and that was at 525 of the opening period. Then it was Eddie Jackman's turn to show that he was a top-rate NHL goaltender as well. He made two brilliant stops on Larry Keenan and Eddie Shack, and then followed that up with good blocks on screenshots by Al Hamilton, who had a couple of uh, shots from the point. With the Rangers' Jimmy Nielsen off uh, in the penalty box, Phil Goyette stuck a 10-footer behind Eddie. Uh, at 18-12 of the first, Donnie Marshall and Eddie Shack. Uh, got the helpers on that. Uh, Crozier then robbed Gilbert from 10 feet just seconds later to keep Buffalo still in the game. Early in the middle frame, Jackman then outguessed uh, Sabres great rookie Gilbert Perot on a two-on-one break and had to be alert when Rod Gilbert almost tipped the puck into into his own goal. Eagers put away Jean Rattel's goal mouth relay at 5.03 of the second period just seconds after Eddie Shack returned 
from the penalty box. Crozier was at it again in this period, making great saves on Ted Irvin, Bob Nevin, and Brad Park before Rod Gilbert finally fired over the net uh, from 10 feet out. Crozier beat Rod Sealing, Eagers, and Jim Nielsen from close range before Dave Ballone finally made it 3-1 to at 10-18 of the middle frame with a five-footer and a tic-tac-toe play with Walt Kachuk and Brad Park and the Sabres' Jean-Guy Talbot off for hooking in the penalty box. Crozier, as it always seems this way, was the story again as he beat Brad Park again and the Stabers' Steve Atkinson uh, then got a breakaway and he missed the net when he went up too high on a falling Eddie Jockerman. Jobert, Rod Jobert that is, then hit a post and Buffalo's Jerry Meehan was high on a two-on-one break as the teams exchanged scoring chances all through the second period. The uh, two-on-one break, by the way, uh, by Meehan, uh, he was with the veteran Dick Duff who, who really looked like he was going to get the pass. Meehan made a great fake and then took the shot, but it uh, did not get in. Walt Kachuk finally cashed a backhander with 29 seconds left in the middle frame to uh, get another Ranger goal. Concerning the uh, disputed goals, uh, Charlie Barton tells us in this game from his perch in the press box, and if you'd ever been in that press box uh, high above the ice surface Memorial Auditorium, I, it was right over the ice. You got a, actually a very good view of the ice surface from up there. Uh, Charlie said that anyway from his perch that uh, referee Sloan aired on both disputed goals. With Rattel off, uh, Shaq raced the length of the ice and he fired at the Ranger net from about 15 feet. Jackman blocked the shot and Park shoved the rebound beneath the goalie. But Sloan ruled uh, that the, the puck actually had gone into the net. This was a 3.28 to give the Sabres a goal. Now then at 7.50 there was a wild scramble around the Buffalo goal. Uh, the whistle blew and Ballone was awarded the score. The puck didn't appear to cross the goal line on either of those two plays, according to, to Charlie Barton. Uh, Gilbert rammed a 30-footer at 11-18, and Ballone put away a 5-footer at 12-30 to finish up the scoring and make the final score 7-2 for the New York Rangers. Our second uh, matchup of the week was Wednesday night uh, in Detroit when the Red Wings hosted the powerful Boston Bruins. In what's been a disastrous season for the Detroiters, they actually acquitted themselves very well against a very powerful Boston squad, but they still managed to lose a game by the narrowest of margins, 2-1. to one. John Ahern of the Boston Grove provides us with the basis of this report uh, in, in what was a pretty entertaining game in Detroit. Ahern wrote that, that the picnic ended early last night, but the Bruins hung on to defeat the Red Wings 2-1, and that ended a 10-game Detroit Olympia winless streak for the Boston team. That win also boosted the Bruins' current win streak to nine games and kept them tied with the Rangers for first place in the NHL's Eastern Division because at the same time the Rangers were whipping the poor Pittsburgh Penguins poor in many ways by the way 6-1. to one. This game start did not start off as it would be a tight close checking score as 2-1 would indicate. Boston scored twice in the first seven minutes of the game on rookie goalie Jimmy Rutherford and it looked like that they were going to embarrass Rutherford on this night but that never happened. 
Eddie Westfall tipped in a pass from Ace Bailey at only 41 seconds of the first, and then Freddie Stanfield scored at 6.04, five seconds into the Bruins' first power play, and after that, Rutherford stood up, and the game became a contest between the two netminders. None other than Derek Sanderson commented after the game that that was the best goaltending he had ever seen, and he meant at both ends. Sanderson said, I thought at the beginning it was going to be a runaway. Coach Tom Johnson of the Bruins echoed those comments, and Johnson added, Rutherford really hung in there well. It was a good job by the youngster. Uh, the refereeing once again entered into the equation in an NHL game. Rutherford was helped by a very strange call that disallowed a second Eddie Westfall goal late in the second period that would have made the score 3-0, and possibly that one might have opened the floodgates. Westfall skated in alone for an apparent shorthanded breakaway score, but referee Bruce, Bruce Hood called the play back. Hood claimed that he had been checked into the Bruins bench and had blown his whistle immediately because he couldn't see the play. Johnson said after that, I never in all my years of hockey have seen that kind of play called before. Incidentally, the only Boston Bruin player who remembered seeing the call like that before was Johnny McKenzie, who said he saw it somewhere in Junior A. Stanfield was the sole Bruin who said that he heard uh, Hood's whistle on the play. The non-goal looked like it would be important in the third period when the Red Wings finally started a small offensive comeback. At 2.34 of the final frame, Frank Mahovlich scored, assisted by Gary Bergman and Alec Delvecchio, and for a short time it looked like the Red Wings were on the move. Boston, however, didn't let up either. They kept firing shots at Rutherford, and at the times Red Wings did sneak down the ice, Eddie Johnson, the Bruins' veteran goalkeeper, who won his 10th straight game in the next, Eddie was prepared. He wound up making 22 saves, while Rutherford finished the night stopping 37 Boston drives. Rutherford was uh, the star of this game as far as anyone was concerned with those 37 saves. Uh, the rookie really stood up well after uh, giving up two early goals. This was a good sign for the Red Wings. They may have found themselves the replacement for the injured Roy Edwards in, in goal for, for Detroit, and they might not have to piece, be continually scouting around for a trade for a veteran netminder, although there were still rumors that the Wings were on the verge of acquiring Cesar Maniego from Minnesota. Uh, we later found out, of course, that never did happen. Our third feature game was a Saturday night Boxing Day contest in Toronto in which the Maple Leafs, suddenly looking like a team that might be a playoff contender, and who would have predicted that a month ago, lambasted the visiting Philadelphia Flyers by a 9-1 count. Uh, we'll give you the Philly perspective on this one with Bruce Keaton of the Philadelphia Inquirer providing us with the basis of this report. Keaton began his report by uh, mentioning that this was Boxing Day in Canada. He says it's the days when gifts are traditionally given to the poor, but somebody 
Forgot to tell the Maple Leafs, the Leafs, terrorizing the downtrodden, used three goals by Paul Henderson and two each by Normie Ullman and Ron Ellis and Dave Keon to blast the poor and needy Philadelphia Flyers right out of Maple Leaf Gardens by that 9-1 score. And the Flyers, going winless for the seventh straight game, became so infuriated by the rampaging Leafs' lack of charity that they very nearly ran their hosts out of the rink, literally hitting everything that moved. The Boxing Day game ended with a 40-man boxing match. It wasn't on the schedule and it didn't take place until all the scoring was finished and the 16,485 Maple Leaf patrons were heading for the exits, but the brawl was worth the price of admission alone. What's started it you can answer that question by saying bob kelly and brian spencer and you wouldn't be wrong but the real answer was simply frustration on the part of the flyers basically what happened was the, the philly skaters just got tired of being undressed in public by the leafs and so at 1827 of the final frame uh bob kelly squared off with brian spencer and it proved for all time that it is better to give then receive. Both benches emptied in a brawl that lasted more than five minutes and featured several separate main events. Doug Favell, who allowed three goals during one period of net mining, and that was in the second frame when he took over for 20 minutes for Bernie Perrant, he took out his frustrations on Mike Pellick. When Spencer escaped from Kelly, Ed Van Imp pounded him for a while too. Bernie Perrant, the Flyers' great goalie who allowed four first-period goals and then two more when he returned in the third period, let out his pent-up feelings on a couple of Toronto skulls, but he escaped detection didn't get any penalties. Referee John Ashley assessed only 45 minutes uh, in the sin bin for the various participants when the bloodletting finally ceased. Of course, the penalties didn't mean a great deal by that time. The hockey game didn't mean much either as well. The Leafs just had no Christmas spirit, were very, very uh, awful hosts, you might say, and gave no gifts to the Flyers at all, who really didn't deserve them either. Toronto recorded his eighth win in its last nine games. That's really a turnaround for the Maple Leafs that no one expected. A Jacques Plante gave the Leafs great goaltending in the early part of the game, and the only flyer to beat him was veteran defenseman Larry Hillman, who took a pass from Bobby Clark and whipped in a shot from uh, right in close just 52 seconds into the second period. This was a night when very little went right for the Flyers coach Vic Stasiuk in a season where very little is going right for Vic Stasiuk. Vic started the evening by juggling right wings on the various lines and then he watched, uh, he started very pr Bernie Perron in goal. He watched him get assaulted in the first period for four. So he told Doug Favell to go in in the second period and that didn't work either. So back in the third came Bernie Perron and yeah, you already know how that turned out. Final score, Toronto 9, Philadelphia 1. So much news we want to talk about from the past week. We'll try and give you at least the highlights here. Uh, George Armstrong, back with the Maple Leafs, told general manager Jim Gregory he wasn't going to attend the team Christmas party and family skate. Now that's a shocking statement from George Armstrong, one of the ultimate Leafs, really, and uh, the quintessential team man, you would have to say, over history. Why wasn't George Armstrong going to go 
to the Leaf Christmas party? Well, the chief actually had his tongue planted firmly in his cheek when he said, I'm not going to the party. I have kids older than some of your players. George, uh, by the way, did show up at the party as usual, but his kids took a pass, as one might expect. Reggie Fleming of the Sabres says that the club did not pay a recent stiff bill in fines that he got from the NHL. Uh, so it's it's uh, probably wrong to presume that the teams always do pay it, but Reggie says this is a case when they definitely didn't. He got nicked for 250 bucks by NHL President Clarence Campbell in a game with the Pittsburgh Penguins, and Reggie claimed he paid every ready nickel Personally, Sir Reginald actually insists that the officials overreacted in this game. Reggie said, I'd been in the arena hospital getting three or four stitches in my ear where Brian Watson cross-checked me. We both got penalties on that. And when I get back, Glenn Sather and Tracy Pratt are having a fight. It looks to me like Watson is coming out of the penalty box to help Sather. And all I did was wave my stick at him to keep him back a little bit didn't hit him nor nothing like that and they give me a misconduct after i get in the penalty box i swing my stick again and wrap the glass in front of watson what harm is there in that well i don't know but i get another misconduct and then i get a game misconduct it's getting awful expensive to play in this league Red Burnetta, the Toronto star, one of the great hockey writers around the NHL for the many of these days, nearing the end of his career now. He reported this week that the Maple Leafs and retired defenseman Carl Brewer were once again talking terms of a contract that would facilitate his return to the NHL wars. Brewer was contacted by Burnett and he would neither confirm nor deny that he had talked with the Leafs who have received permission to discuss a contract with him from the Detroit Red Wings who still own his rights. The uh, coach John McClellan of the Leafs was questioned and asked uh, about the negotiations and he said that he was unaware of any talks with the former Maple Leaf and so that's where it stood at the end of this week. In Detroit, despite the odd solid performance, uh, both GM Sid Abel and coach Ned Harkness uh, continue to be frustrated by the club's uh, performance. And they seem to be on the same page, at least as far as their assessment of this year's Detroit uh, club is concerned. Uh, We got a perspective from the Montreal Gazette in a story that carried no byline, but we think Pat Curran may have penned the article. The report uh, quoted Sid Abel as saying the way the Wings are playing, it's the worst team that has ever worn the Red Wing jersey. Abel was angry and terribly upset because he just watched the Red Wings lose to the Canadian or to California 7-3 after absorbing a 9-1 thrashing at Pittsburgh the previous evening. Who could blame Sid for two losses to two very poor expansion teams like that? Well, Ned Harkness, the rookie coach, he was even more angry and after those games he said from now on I get tough. If I'm going to hang, I'll hang for doing it my way. If they don't like it they can go to sit able but i'm going to get tough and they can either do it my way or get out and if they go to sid then he can either get rid of them or get rid of me this is uh ned harkness saying if you kids don't settle down i'm going to turn this car around well both able and harkness met with owner bruce norris after that sunday debacle 
But uh, as of the end of this week, no heads had rolled and no new rules had taken uh, taken place on the Red Wings team, although Harkness said he was going to get very tough. So far, the most drastic thing that's happened with Red Wings is the smoking ban in and around the dressing room. Abel said he talked with uh, Norris and said that uh, they had made po- or talked about possible moves that might be made by the Red Wings, but as of that point, nothing was on the table that uh, would have uh, improved the Red Wings' fortunes in any way. Abel said that he couldn't fathom how the Wings could have so many goals scored against them with the talent that they have on the club. Uh, Abel said that if the team doesn't come out of it, they just might bring up a bunch of kids and let the chips fall where they may. One of the factors that may have hurt the Red Wings was when they sold Bobby Bond and traded Pete Stemkowski. They lost two of their most experienced hitters from the pre-expansion days and there was no improvement in the team from these moves. So Abel is going to be a very uh, reticent to really get rid of players, though I think both Bond and Stemkowski were jettisoned from Detroit, not because of Sid Abel, but because the coach, Ned Harkness, didn't want them around. Uh, this story is going to continue. As you know, we've been bringing it to you all year. Much, much more to come in, in the coming months. We ask ourselves, what the heck is going on in Calgary, one of the great hockey cities in Canada? So we've been told. Well, the first major hockey story this week was announcement from the Calgary Stampeders of the Alberta Senior Hockey League that suddenly, without warning, they were indefinitely suspending operation. That was followed a day later with the pronouncement that there's going to be no Western Hockey League team Uh, No Vancouver Canucks farm team in Calgary next season. And that was something that was completely uh, thought to be a done deal. The Canucks bid to place a a, uh, Western Hockey League team uh, and a farm team for the team was turned down on Tuesday in Calgary. The Calgary Exhibition and Stampede Board unanimously rejected the offer of putting the team in there saying a Western Hockey League franchise would not be coming to the Stampede Corral at this time. Now Ed O'Connor, president of the board, said that 30 of the 31 board directors voted on the proposal with one abstention. O'Connor said that a possible quote adverse effect uh, for home games involving the Junior A Calgary Centennials uh, said that the fact that fans did not support the WHL hockey in the latter years of the operation when Calgary had a team before and it might hurt the Junior A team now so they do not want to take a chance and make anything worse for the juniors. Calgary dropped out of the WHL by the way back after the 1962-63 season. Now the Canucks badly want to have a farm team in the Western Hockey League. Right now the main farm club is in Rochester, New York and the logistics of bringing players back and forth is a nightmare in 1970. So the Canucks don't know what they're going to do right about now. Uh, Bud Poyle says uh, we still want to operate a WHL franchise next year but now I guess we have to go back to square one. 
Here's an interesting note from the U.S. national team this week. Although in 1970, it meant basically nothing to anybody who wasn't in Minnesota. But Herb Brooks, a defenseman with the American national team for the last eight years, said today he's retiring as a player because, quote, I have too many other things I want to be concerned with. Brooks is coach at the University of Minnesota hockey freshman, and he's also an insurance salesman. He said he found that he can no longer concentrate on the game because of other commitments. He shares with John Masich that record for years playing with the Hockey Nationals, eight years with the U.S. national team, and now it looks like Herb Brooks is never going to be involved in uh, the U.S. national program, at least not for a while. We wanted to follow up on a story we give you a couple of weeks ago uh, when the Stanley Cup was stolen from the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. Well, fear not, hockey fans. The 1971 Stanley Cup champions will be able to celebrate with the legendary trophy again this spring. The gang that stole the Stanley Cup on December 5th surrendered it this week back to police after trying to use professional hockey's major trophy as ransom to free a jailed hold-up suspect. The gang, probably named the gang that couldn't shoot straight, gave up after the police laughed off their attempts to make a deal. Besides, the gang had learned that the cup they swiped on the Hockey Hall of Fame Canadian National Exhibition grounds is only an expensive replica, even though the NHL tramps, uh, champs drink champagne from it every season. The real Stanley Cup, as we mentioned before, is hidden in a bank vault uh, which is possibly in Toronto. Well, now it's at, uh, in uh, 2020, we know it's at the new Hockey Hall of Fame down uh, near the waterfront in Toronto. And uh, you can see it there if, uh, if you happen to make a trip. So back to, to 1970, for two weeks, a woman has been dickering by telephone with Toronto Police Detective Sergeant Wally Harkness. He's the head of the Metro Police uh, Complaints Bureau. She warned that men in the gang would toss the cup into Lake Ontario unless their pal was released from jail on what Harkness described as a very serious robbery charge. Harkness said the woman told him the men were afraid he would recognize their voices and that's why uh, they weren't negotiating and they basically tasked her with uh, carrying out the talks with the police. Well, after laughing off the uh, goofy uh, offer that had been made to him, nothing happened for a couple days. When uh, the next morning or a couple mornings later, Harkness went outside to see why his dog was barking and found the Stanley Cup in the driveway of his home on East York's Prestige Avenue. Right there with the Stanley Cup in the driveway for all to see were the Conn Smythe Trophy for the outstanding performance in the playoffs and the Bill Masterson Trophy, which is awarded uh, by sports writers uh, to a player who they believe puts uh, above and beyond to the game. They were stolen at the same time as the cup. The Sterling Silver Stanley Cup is a replica of the original trophy presented in 1893 by Lord Stanley of Preston. 
He was Canada's sixth governor general and it's used in presentations and dressing room uh, champagne parties because the real one is just too fragile uh, for the rough handling that the cup gets these days. The Stanley Cup had been stolen once before and that was in April of 1969 and at that time it was recovered by Detective Harold Lambert after a telephone tip. Last January, someone stole three of its engraved plates from the Hockey Hall of Fame. These are the plates that go around the bottom of the cup that bear all the names of the teams that have won that uh, story trophy. Uh, Detective Harkness said that uh, the Stanley Cup, uh, the uh, Masterton and the Smythe trophies were all in uh, pretty good shape, but the Masterton trophy had sustained a little bit of damage, but they felt that that could could be fixed up pretty quickly. So fear not, hockey fans, a Stanley Cup is back where it belongs, at least is where it's being stored. The fans in Toronto believe it belongs somewhere in Maple Leaf Gardens. We don't see that happening anytime very soon. Last week, we told you about the tragic incident involving the father of Lise Brian Spencer. Uh, At that time, when we made the report, uh, we weren't able to acquire uh, the clip of what was going on that night. Uh, During the Maple Leaf hockey game, Brian Spencer was interviewed between periods by Hockey Night in Canada legendary host Ward Cornell. uh, We were able to, this week, Thanks to uh, the top hockey historian on the planet, Paul Patsko, we were able to acquire a clip of that interview, and we thought we'd bring that to you here. Brian, for the first time on national television, and we have the clip here, and uh, we'll just let you listen to that right now. The Minnesota North Stars and the Montreal Canadiens, and we're happy now to welcome a young man who's just been with the Leafs this past week, Brian Spencer, and uh, Brian, since joining the team, looks like you've come to play. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's what I had to had in mind when I came up. Brian, when they came up, did they say they wanted you to do some thumping, hard hitting? Uh, not really, but uh, it always turns out that way. This is, this is my style of hockey. That's your style of game, right? Eh? In two games, you've had two-spirited encounters. Uh, did, do you find that when you have a bit of a reputation that people try to test you? Uh, yeah, I find that. Uh, and like uh, my experience in the Central League, uh, it takes about a half a season to establish yourself, and uh, and then then you start getting your breaks. Uh, the guys leave you alone, but mm-hmm. up until then, there's always guys running there, you know, testing you. The word gets around, and they try you. Yeah. <laughs> now, up until last year, uh, or last year, you were up for how many games? I was uh, 13 games. 13 I games. Came up March 14th. Did you feel you had a pretty good shot at it? Uh, well, uh, not. I had a good first first game, but uh, I was unfortunate in getting hurt the first game, and, and so that uh, hurt my chances mm-hmm. right there. And Brian, tell me about yourself. Your home is where? In uh, Fort St. James, British Columbia. It's uh, about the central, central of the province. Mm-hmm. That's where I played most of my minor hockey. Mm-hmm. And you played junior hockey? Uh, in uh, Estevan, Saskatchewan. It was, uh, at that time, a balloon organization. And uh, then I turned pro with Tulsa last fall, and I've been in there between there and here since then. Now, Brian, are you on what they call emergency recall? Uh, yes, this is, I believe so. Uh, Trotje was hurt, and uh, they recalled the winger. And I, I happen to be the winger, so I'm up on emergency as far as I know. Now, is that any limited number of games? I mean, like, you play six games, you have to go back or, or not? Uh, I'm not really sure. 
Uh, last year I was on emergency recall too, but I uh, stayed up the rest of the season. I believe it was because I was hurt, I'm not sure, but uh, I'm on emergency call right now. Well, now you've been up in the two games, uh, the Wednesday game in here. Was there one, just, were you on the road for one game or not? No, 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 I came up after the Pittsburgh game. Now then, both of those were, so far, I've been, this one's been a good rough encounter. Physically, which team is a, is a rougher team, Chicago or Montreal? Well, I think Montreal is a rougher team of the two. Mm -hmm. Why? And, uh, well, uh, there's, they're harder hitting and they're, they're faster. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you have a faster game, you, you have more aggressive play and consequently uh, a lot more rougher play. And Brian, what personal goals have you set for yourself for this year? For this year, I'd like to stay uh, staff with Toronto and, and help the club as much as I can and maybe score 15 goals if I can. Thank you very much, Brian, and the very best of Good luck to you in pursuit of that. Happy night in Canada continues in just a moment. We thank Paul Patsko for that great clip. Uh, Paul Patsko is probably the top hockey historian on the entire planet. We're also very, very good friends. He's a great guy, and Paul helps us with a lot of our research as well. And we'll be having Paul on, on the show, uh, hopefully in the new year. We like to do our, our talks in person, but we'll probably do a Zoom session. And Paul's going to be participating in a couple of very unique ways as time goes on. Thanks again to Paul Patsko. Well, we get a bit of junior hockey news this week. Uh, Nick Durbano is the owner of the Hamilton Red Wings of the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series. And he has asked former Maple Leaf player Billy Harris, one of the very popular Maple Leafs of the 50s and 60s, to take over his floundering junior team as head coach. Uh, Durbano has had three coaches already this season, so uh, he needs somebody to provide a little bit of stability there. Billy, at uh, the end of this week, was still mulling over the idea, as I'm sure he'd want to think about it pretty uh, seriously. I don't know if he wants to get involved with an erratic owner like Nick Durbano. Speaking of the Durbanos, uh, his son Steve is a defenseman with the Toronto Marlboros of the same Junior A League, and uh, he's a talented player but he seems to have a few behavioral issues, to say the least. Well, Durbano, in a game against Peterborough this week, acquired three major penalties, two of them for injuring Peterborough players in a 10-minute misconduct and a game misconduct in, in a game in which the Peets, Peterborough, swamped the Toronto Marlboros 12-2, uh, and he almost broke the leg of Peterborough Peets captain Craig Ramsey. Uh Roger Nielsen, the Peterborough coach, and he called for a suspension. A lot of things took place in this game. Suffice it to say, Nielsen received a one-game suspension, Durbano a two-game suspension, and he was placed on probation by the Ontario Hockey Association. We think this is just the beginning of Steve Durbano's problems. You'll remember we told you uh, last week that the NHL thought they had a uh, savior when they, uh, multimedia corporation Metro Media said that they wanted to buy the Pittsburgh Penguins. Well, the sale of the Penguins to the owners of the Ice Capades formally fell through this week. It will not happen. Metro Media is a conglomerate, publicly owned organization, uh, which owns the Ice Capades, among other attractions. And their president is Pittsburgher George Eby, E-B-Y. Uh, 
they met an executive committee this week in New York and decided they didn't want to buy the club because it did not want to enter the professional sports field at this time, preferring to have family attractions like the Ice Capades as their main businesses. That means that the National Hockey League, who took control of the Penguins on December 1st after owner Darnold Parsons uh, found out he was too far in debt to make his payments, the NHL will operate the team on an indefinite uh, a basis for as long as it takes until they can find a sucker or sorry until they can find a viable buyer for the penguins the case of toronto maple leaf forward mike walton got even a bit murkier this week if that's possible the nhl when uh Agent for Walton, Allen Eagleson, appealed his suspension by the Maple Leafs. The NHL ordered a thorough examination by an independent medical professional, and that uh, doctor determined that Shaky Walton is suffering from extreme depression and is unable to play for the Toronto Club at any time in the future. The doctor recommended a move out of Toronto, and based on this report, National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell ordered the Leafs to reinstate Walton, rescinding any suspension and repaying any salary that the young hockey player would have lost during this time. Campbell also said that he would provide any assistance required in facilitating Walton's move out of Toronto. That's just what the Maple Leafs want Clarence Campbell negotiating trades for them. Let the trade rumors now begin in earnest. And this week came to an end with some terrible news, not as bad as we've seen this year, but still bad news for the fledgling Buffalo Sabres. Goalie Roger Crozier, he needs pretty often the only player on the team worth watching on many nights in this, their first NHL season. Well, Roger was hospitalized this week with a severe case of pancreatitis and that's a malady as uh, most hockey fans at this time knew has felled Roger several times in the past. There was no timeline for Roger's return to the Sabres and that means that Joe Daly, he of no mask and Dave Dryden will handle the Buffalo Sabres netminding duties for the foreseeable future. Let's hope Roger Crozier is able to re recover from this latest bout and uh, get back to the NHL ice very, very soon. So that is our show for this week, everybody. And what did we learn from this past seven days? Well, we learned that the savior of the Pittsburgh Penguins was just a mirage shop. They're still in trouble. We found out that the plans for a Western Hockey League team in Calgary have hit an insurmountable obstacle. The arena board in Calgary wants no part of a professional operation uh, in that city. And we found out that the Stanley Cup, or at least the model you see every spring at the end of the playoffs, has been returned to its rightful home at the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. Next week, some of the stories we're working on, well, we will have some hopeful news on the status of Buffalo goalie Roger Crozier. Uh, we're going to find out that Gary Unger of the Red Wings... Uh, 
participated in a wide-ranging interview with the Detroit Free Press, and the reaction from team management about this interview was not at all positive for the Young Star Center. And the Red Wings will hit rock bottom amid a ton of trade rumors and how they hit bottom, uh, you just have to hear it to believe it. As usual, we'll also have all the big game results and including a game and where the Red Wings hit bottom and news and notes from around the hockey world. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. I can't thank Andy enough for all the work he puts into this project. Andy's now in the business of producing podcasts professionally. He can do a great job for you. If you want to put a podcast together, contact me and we will set you up. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction music. And if you ever get a chance to see them perform live, they put on a great show. Don't miss the opportunity. Other musical pieces in the podcast and our sound effects, by the way, are produced by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course, the many fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at, at Hockey50Years. Every day we have the news uh, in tweet form for you if you want to follow along daily. We're on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey banner. We have a WordPress site located at Hockey50YearsAgo.com where we give updates on the podcast and other uh, news from our project. Of course, you can get the podcast anywhere that fine podcasts can be downloaded. We thank you to everyone who tunes into our show. We're having a great time bringing this to you. Uh, it's keeping us going during this pandemic. We hope we're bringing a little enjoyment to you as well. And on that note, we will see you next time.